0: Everyone was very sharp today, very, ah. very sharp today.
1: It's because I had a nap.
2: Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom rivet I'm
3: Cristiana Figueres.
2: And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we fall in love with the ocean. We realize that Costa Rica isn't perfect. We speak to ocean explorer and educator Philippe Cousteau and we have music from Nick Mulvey. Thanks for being here. Any comment on my opening uh, introduction? Yeah, what was that about, Tom? There must be what something serious. What
1: was
3: that about, Tom? I would really Constantly love you to know. know thing. I have heard. I mean, it?
2: I've heard a rumor that, despite the overwhelming beauty of that country, there are creatures that can hide in your closet and sting you.
3: Yes, but they're beautiful creatures. They are scorpions. They are absolutely scorpions! fantastic.
0: Did you say scorpions? Yes.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm collecting them for you, Paul, when you come. <laughs> They're beautiful creatures. They do they do sting you and uh, and you do undergo quite a bit of pain uh, for a while and it depends on the species and the size of the scorpion. But um, A, you survive and B, it does not detract from the beauty of these animals. So, so Your, that all yeah. feels
1: very abstract. Tell us specifically what happened. You know, Christiana, you're not top of the food chain and you just have to accept that. In Costa Rica, the stuff that we've sorted out in Europe, in Costa Rica, it's still a contest. That's my view. <laughs>
2: Josh, the ecological ignorance of that statement is just, it's quite difficult to know to respond to it. I'm, I'm not sure it. we've sorted it
3: out. What, why am I not top of the food chain? Sorry. Well, like you know, I mean,
1: I, 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 probably if I was here, you know, a few thousand years ago, like a bear might come and eat me, as opposed to me eating the bear. The scorpion came and ate you. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you no, it didn't to- eat
3: me. No, no, it just stung me because I was imprudent enough to walk into my closet with bare feet and not put the light on. All my own fault.
2: What sort of size was this
1: scorpion? Yeah, that's the question. That's the question that's on my mind. What is a, what yeah. is a scorpion but a kind of land lobster? That's the way I look at it. How big?
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a small lobster. You're right. If that's the way you would like to think about it, I'm not sure.
1: Whether well, the claw uh, at the back one. Small or, I'm not stinging sure, lobsters. The, yeah, I'm the limit of my natural uh, world here. But uh, how, I, how, I would how
3: long? say I, I would say this scorpion was um, about the length of a small iPhone. How's that? <gasps> What? That's pretty much the, the
1: seven or the six or the or the five. the old ones or the new ones.
3: <laughs> In any event, um, I shall send you a photograph so that you can appreciate the beauty of this thing.
2: Well, not only that we should share it with our viewers. So when this episode comes out, Christiana will tweet a picture of the scorpion that stung her. Okay, correct? Is, yes. is the scorpion
1: still well? Are you cohabiting still? Is there like been an issues? Because I would have found that if that's my flatmate, I would have found that like bad behavior.
3: No, I'm afraid the scorpion is now gone onto uh, greener pastures or bluer pastures.
2: <laughs> because you, because you uh-huh. trod on it.
3: Yeah, yes, unfortunately.
2: <laughs> However. Is this affair. the only scorpion you've ever found in your house?
3: No, no, no. I've actually had to sadly kill three exactly in the same spot. So there's something in my closet that they love. I don't know what it is. Um and I have now learned my lesson. I now turn on the light and I check the floor and I shake out my shoes before I put them on. But but let's remember let let's remember I'm in Scorpion territory. I'm the intruder here. So you know if they're protecting themselves from me. Walking around, it's actually, they're totally right.
1: I've seen this before in in Australia where a shark gets somebody and there were people on the beach immediately saying, the shark's just doing what it's meant to do. Mind you, we shouldn't probably play this, Clay, because I know that uh, Philippe Cousteau Jr. does indeed say that Steven Spielberg's Jaws sent
2: oceans back 40 years. Cut the whole segment. We should definitely keep that in, Clay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So. So... So we discovered that Costa Rica isn't perfect, or maybe it is perfect with its beautiful scorpions that you need to be careful not to step on. Exactly. But there are other elements. And this week we will be talking, of course, in great detail about the ocean and how it is possible to really fall in love with the ocean. And indeed, we have done so. But Christiana, when I first met you and I first joined you at the UN, and it was the lead up to Paris, it was this incredibly intense, difficult process. And I remember you used to keep a blue marble with you wherever you went. Why did you do that?
3: Yeah, I kept a blue marble in my computer briefcase because it it was given to me by um, NGOs that work on ocean issues. And their request was always remember the oceans. Mm. And they were absolutely true in that. So correct in that request because... Those of us who work on climate tend to, and I definitely did, so, you know, that's why I carried the blue mark, to correct myself, we tend to think of terrestrial impacts um, of climate and terrestrial causes of climate change. And somehow, other than sea level rise, which is always part of our discourse and our thinking, we don't really think about the fact that the oceans have given us enormous, enormous respite um, and that they have been absorbing, what, 80, 90% of the heat that we have produced and that they're and paying the CO2, huge, right? And the CO2, and that that has had a huge price on the oceans. So we're not grateful enough, A, for the atmospheric and environmental role that the oceans have been playing while we have been completely irresponsible. Um, And we don't think of the impact, i.e. the price that they are paying and ultimately the price that we will pay because we're losing so much of the ocean because of heat and CO2.
2: So can you just set out very quickly for listeners, because, you know, many people will be familiar with this, but others may not be. What is the role of the ocean in climate stabilisation?
3: So, the oceans have been absorbing, as we said, they have been all the time that we have been spewing out much more CO2 than we should, and certainly much more than we ever did in the past. The oceans are, let's think of the oceans as a huge sponge, okay, a liquid sponge that has been absorbing CO2 and absorbing heat, and that translates into acidification of the oceans, it translates into coral reef um, die back. It translates into my species migrating to colder waters away from the waters that are warming much, uh, much quicker. And if you add to that overfishing and you add to that pollution of the oceans, well, we are definitely not being responsible with um, with the oceans that surround all of us. And um, so while the the reason why and everybody asks me why are oceans not mentioned in the United Nations convention on climate change mm. The issue why that is so is because the convention itself and the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, they're all based on what is causing climate change. The oceans do not cause climate change. They're protecting us from climate change. So there's a very much of a causality argument and logic to the convention and the protocol and the Paris Agreement. But if you step away from causality and you look at impacts Oceans are definitely there, front and center.
4: Hmm.
2: Paul,
1: and just a word on sea level rise. Um, you, you know, we we know about the, the glaciers melting, but we also know the polar ice caps are melting. You know, people talking about the northern ice cap could be gone in fifteen years. Um, it was brilliantly put uh, to me by somebody saying, "Say you make a cup of tea and you want to leave the house and you're in a hurry. If you put a little bit of water in the tea, it's not cold enough to drink. You put an ice cube in the tea, and it's immediately cold enough to drink." So. The melting of ice is absorbing the most incredible amount of energy. But unfortunately, when that ice is gone, we're suddenly going to get hit by this massive energy burden. So it's just another way of looking at these services that were being provided, giving us temporary respite, time to act, but we must act.
2: And and given that, I mean, the role of the ocean in the world economy and in the response to everything that we're kind of facing at the moment is fundamental, right? I mean, I was kind of shocked to discover recently just the role that the ocean plays, not only in climate stable but also in the global economy, which has been brought into sharp relief by COVID. Christiana, I think you had some statistics on that.
3: Yeah, so amazing statistics we just looked at recently, because we don't think of the oceans as being their own economy. We think of terrestrial economy, right? Everything that we do on land. But the fact is that if you want to call it the blue economy, which I think is a beautiful term, the collection of formal and informal marine jobs, products, and services are valued at $2.5 trillion a year, which means if the ocean were a nation, it would rank as the seventh largest economy in the world. In the world. And the oceans and all of the ocean-based industries Um, contribute 31 million full-time jobs. So there's Mm. a huge economy, you know, call it the blue economy, call it the liquid economy, whatever you want to call it, but just a huge part of the global economy that we tend to not um, be very cognizant of.
2: Mm. Yeah, totally. Totally.
1: Um, I'll tell you something I picked up this week which I think is interesting and and will lead me on to just a little tiny ocean story. It is actually that uh, Bloomberg reported Greta Thunberg is back and she's told Angela Merkel to declare a climate emergency in Germany, which I think is incredibly exciting, uh, reported on 20th of August. And she's delivered uh, a letter uh, to the German Chancellor signed by 125,000 people. And I mention this because I am... Endlessly inspired by by Greta's leadership and that of many other youth, and um, actually, I was just talking to a friend about uh, she was on a demonstration uh, last spring. I think you know the time she said of 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 uh, of Greta of of the Attenborough's documentary of Extinction Rebellion when things were very much uh, in in the air uh, about a time a need for change, and uh, her ten year old niece I think it was. Um, was was wearing a T-shirt and had a placard about the oceans. And I said, why was that? And uh, she says, well, this this 10-year-old loves dolphins and whales and, and I think can probably sense, in a sense, some of their vulnerability. Uh, she goes to a very switched-on primary school. Um, she, they were on a student strike march. But the preciousness of the oceans and keeping things in balance and seeing plastic and the visible damage it can do to to fish and sea creatures and you know, recognising systemically that could be my rubbish. I yeah. could have done that. Yeah. That's, I think, one of the things that's been most powerful and maybe where uh, younger people actually have a great advantage over older people, that, that they have a, more of an intuitive sense of, of something uh, like the oceans, which can appear to dinosaurs like a big flat blue thing.
2: <laughs> we'll hear more about that. So, um, So let's turn to this conversation that we had just a couple of days ago with Philippe Cousteau. Um, which I think goes in more detail than than we ever could to the oceans and the role that they play in the world. Uh, Philippe Cousteau Jr. Uh, is, of course, the son of Philippe Cousteau and the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, the famed oceanographer um he's continued the work of his father and grandfather by educating the public about environmental and conservation issues um he's received an emmy for his hosting of the syndicated science series awesome planet um he's a very inspiring person who fell in love with the ocean at an early age and can really inspire and help us to do so and we love this conversation with him so um so let's listen to it and we'll be back afterwards
1: sounds great let's go what a joy to have you on Outrage and Optimism. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to spend some time with us. Um, we've been enormously impressed by your work, bringing to life a kind of an awareness of the oceans, of, of, of the water that is basically our planet. Can you help me out here a little bit? Because uh, I want to start off with a question. Um, I've, I've been working for 20 years in climate change. I, I understand what's a forest fire. I understand you know, about land degradation. I, I, you know, I I know all this stuff. I see the photos. um, And I live by the sea. I live by the ocean, actually, on the south of England. And it's a big, flat, blue thing. And I know (laughs) nothing about it. And so- It's it's, a big-
3: what did what did you just say? The, the, it's I a said, big It really catches the, the scope
2: and beauty, doesn't it? Mean,
1: it's very I mean, very eloquent. Yeah. I
5: appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, well first of all I just wanna say interrupt real quick and tell you how honored I am. To be a part of this, uh, how what a fan I am of all your work and um, outrage and optimism uh, as well. But but the work that you've engaged in going back years, all three of you is uh, is is really inspiring, and and I'm I'm really honored to be a part of this. So thank you for having me.
1: Well, and also thank you for rescuing me from getting like seriously beaten up by Christiana because it was
2: beginning to happen.
5: <laughs> I and saw that you, it, was, if if was ha- pending, it was it was it was so. building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got your back. Paul. I, I,
3: <laughs> I wonder, I wonder, Paul, if you really want to stay on this team or if you would like to be relieved. A big, flat, blue thing. Okay, but, Philippe, uh, I think you have to rescue him.
5: Well, listen, but I think actually, Christiana, I, that 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 the way he's describing it is the way that a lot of people would describe it. So in that sense, yeah. I think it's an apt description. And it is the big challenge that we face I think in global conservation and have faced for decades. You know, it was 76 years ago that my grandfather invented scuba diving. Um, mm. And prior to that, the only way we really explore the ocean was what we pulled out in seafood and what we dumped in in trash. And so for most of history, our perspective of the ocean has been as a big flat blue thing full of mysterious, weird, scary creatures. Uh, uh-huh, and now Paul is getting no very
3: excited. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what he thinks.
5: Yeah, and I did see Jaws when I was about
1: 14 and found the uh, ocean very difficult afterwards. But look, you <laughs> honestly- no, I uh, tell seriously. you,
5: Steven Spielberg has a lot to answer for for the oceans, let me tell you. <laughs> it was, that was a, 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 a set our work back. My grandfather, I remember, said at the time it set our work back 40 years. Wow. Um, wow. Unfortunately, wow. but- uh, uh, yeah, so you know, out of sight out of mind, I think is the big challenge when it comes to the ocean and, and that's what we battle every day. and so but, but let, so let's just assume
1: that I mean, I know now I actually was was listening to you Philip, and you were talking about how two of every three breaths I take, come from the ocean okay i i've spent long enough uh working with very smart uh experts like christiana who box my ears when i say it's a big (laughs) black but how can how can you know our listeners who maybe know quite a lot about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and stuff how can they grasp uh you know the the essential sort of scale and meaning of our oceans
5: well, when we talk about climate change in particular, what I like to tell people is climate change is an ocean problem. Mm. Um, fundamentally, when we look at how our climate is regulated on this planet, it's regulated by the ocean. Uh, and there is only one ocean, truly, it's all connected, right? Mm. We call it the oceans, but but it's really one system. And as we look at uh, uh, that system and how it transfers heat throughout the globe, that's really you know what regulates our climate and thus our weather and thus our crops and our rainfall and all these other things that all of us depend on for survival. So uh, unfortunately, the ocean gets overlooked uh, far too much, but it has a critical role uh, not only in, in how it's impacted by climate, but how it impacts climate and has a critical role that I think is all too often overlooked in helping us to uh, combat climate change. Um, as we look at uh, concepts like blue carbon, as we look at the ecosystems like mangroves and seagrass that are e- vital carbon sinks. Um, and you know we, we talk about rainforests all the time, we talk about the Amazon and rightfully so, it's, it's a, it, an enormously impactful critical ecosystem. And yet, as you pointed out, Paul, the, 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 the majority of our oxygen comes from uh, the ocean, from plankton in the ocean. And um, indeed, a, a square acre of, man- of healthy mangrove can absorb more carbon than a square acre of rainforest. And so mm. we're, we, we overlook these, these uh, ocean-based ecosystems, but they are a critical tool in the arsenal. Uh, and as I said, we're losing mangroves faster than rainforest around the world, that very gets very little attention. But as we do so, we continue to impede our uh, ability to absorb carbon and, and, and combat climate change. So the ocean plays an underappreciated, but vital role.
1: And just a tiny follow up question, what, what is the main driver of the cause of the loss of the mangrove?
5: So one of the big drivers is coastal development um, uh, because unfortunately mangroves tend to be in tropical places. Uh, and another big driver is shrimp farms, believe it or not, in Central America, in, uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, Shrimp farms are chosen to be along the coast typically historically. Uh, they clear cut these mangroves, dig these big pits, dump a bunch of shrimp in. Um, and then over the course of a couple of years, these pits of water that are outflowing onto the reef, this putrid wastewater coming from these shrimp farms, kills the reef, destroys the ecosystem. It was very scandalous in in India several years ago. Um, This was brought to light and there was some legislation around trying to prevent this from happening, but uh, still there's clear cutting of mangroves for development and predominantly shrimp farms still going on around the world. Um, People love their shrimp cocktail, their prawn cocktail, but uh, it is both from a historically from a a aquaculture perspective and also from a fishing perspective, one of if not the most unsustainable seafood uh, in the world.
3: I have to say, Philippe, You answered um, Paul's question beautifully from your head. I would (laughs) love to hear the answer from your heart. How did you fall in love with the big... What did you call it? Big flat blue big, thing. Big blue flat
1: thing. Yeah, people would have seen <laughs> yeah. it, you know, big from, big from the train window thing. or something. If you're in an airplane, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes you
3: can. I would. I I would love to know how did you fall in love with it because I'm in love with it. I live, you know, looking over the the Pacific Ocean. But how did you fall in love with it? And how can everyone else fall in love with it? Because honestly, if we don't fall in love, all the data that you've just given us just goes into some kind of a mental closet, and then we. Close the door on that. So I would love to hear your answer from your heart.
5: That's such a great point, Christiana. That um, and and my I remember growing up, my grandfather and mother always told me that that information that we remember and care about passes through the heart, not through the mind. Um, so you're absolutely correct. My journey with the ocean started since I can remember. Perhaps somewhat of a unique journey in in many ways, in that my grandfather Jacques Cousteau was such a pioneer of ocean exploration, um, that my father was also um, a pioneer, uh, really the one who advocated for, you know, when my grandfather started out, a lot of people don't recognize that that when he was a young man, all the things we take for granted, that the coral reefs and, and sharks and the images that, that we that are common today were mysteries for people. And it really wasn't until Um, he engineered a a valve that he could put on a tank and swim freely underwater and essentially invented scuba diving Um, that that changed. And then he created underwater cameras and he started Mm -hmm. filming all these things and images. So I grew up with those images. Um, My Mm -hmm. father then really helped to pioneer the concept of ocean conservation, not just exploration. Unfortunately, my father died six months before I was born in an airplane accident. Yes, yes. And so for me, the ocean always represented a way to connect with him a way to uh. understand where I came from because I never knew him personally. Mm. Um, mm. I, I could see his films and hear the stories from my mother who spent 13 years on expedition. Um, but for me, the ocean represented a, a connection to my father. Um, mm. and, uh, but, but I think universally, every time that I visit the ocean, I see the ocean and, and imagine the wonder and the potential that exists. So often people are obsessed with this idea of looking up in space. Uh, and, And we're investing so much money. I mean, I won't go on a rant. I could go on a rant forever on this, but we've spent so much money to find out if there was ever water on Mars, which actually has zero bearing on our survival on this planet. It has nothing to do with that. I'm sure this topic has come up. Um, And yet we look at the ocean and there's still so much we don't know about our own planet. And there are aliens living amongst us and we don't know it. Um, You know, only a handful of people have been to the deepest part of the ocean, all the statistics that we've all heard. And so for me, it captures the imagination. I wonder how much there is to explore, how much there is to see, what what incredible creatures exist beyond those shores beneath that flat blue landscape Mm -hmm. that can capture all of our imaginations. The the, Mm -hmm. the oceans feeds our spirit. We come from the ocean, our salt water, our, our blood is like salt water um and and we are connected in the ocean to the ocean I think the mm. ocean throughout history has represented something that's united us and brought us together and I think it still can mm. that's that, a good answer that's beautiful <laughs> it, it strikes me just listening to
2: you talk that you know we we sort of have similar we face similar challenges and we have but and we come at them in different ways you know from climate and from ocean and of course it's all connected as well but You know, when I hear you talk there, you talk. You have to talk both about what we have and what we could lose as tools to motivate people to get engaged in this issue. And we sort of go back and forth. That's what the name of the podcast is: outrage and optimism. Like the optimism of what we have and what we could do in the world we could create, and the outrage about what we're facing and what's collapsing and what's falling apart. How, what have you learned as, I mean, you're a, your grandfather was one of the world's best ever storytellers. I mean, you're a storyteller as well, as as much as, as anything. What have you learned about that dynamic and sort of talking about risk and talking about
5: that love of this, you know, of the ocean or of the climate or of the natural environment? Well, you know, the the I think the idea of hope and optimism is one that is all too often drowned out in the current conversation, which is, I, I yeah. do love the, the title of, of your podcast for that reason, it starts with optimism and it has to. And Hmm. if we wanna capture people's hearts, then we have to give them a world to believe in, something to to fight for. Uh, When I think of the stories uh, and and watch the films, The Silent World, for example, Hmm. the, the famous, Oscar-winning film my grandfather did, which was really people's first glimpse under the ocean back in the 1940s. And you see him diving on the reefs in the south of France in the Mediterranean, and there are beautiful coral and schools of fish and sharks. And this, he, there's this one scene where he dances with Jojo, the, 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 uh, an enormous grouper uh, as big as a German shepherd. I've been diving in those places through the course of my life, and you go back, and they're just seaweed and nothing essentially a barren wasteland in, in that period of time. So we've already lost so much. So it's not really about sustainability. That's another term that I'm yeah. increasingly getting frustrated with because it's not, we don't <laughs> want to sustain the way the world is. Yeah. We want to return it to abundance exactly. and enhancement. Right. Right, right, you know, yeah. we've, exactly. we've lost yes. 50% of the biodiversity on earth in my lifetime. And I have a 14 month old daughter and I look at her and I think to myself, my God, she was born into a world that has half- the natural riches that i was born into and what a yep. what a crime against humanity
6: yeah. frankly yep.
5: um and and so but but then i go to a place like the marshall islands out in the far pacific where we did a, my my wife ashlyn and i co-hosted a, a show for discovery several years ago and this is a place where the united states conducted uh, devastating nuclear testing in the 1950s and 1960s. We dropped dozens of bombs, including the largest bomb, Castle Bravo, that we ever dropped. It was a thousand times stronger than the bomb we dropped in Hiroshima. Wow. And um, it was, the entire region was, everything was killed, vaporized, devastated. And it became a de facto marine reserve. And we heard rumors just a few years ago that this ecosystem somehow had def- defying logic, had had bounced back was flourishing and that grey reef sharks which we didn't believe would migrate over long distances were back on this these atolls coming clearly from they would have to come from hundreds of miles away and which defied everything we knew about these shark species and and how quickly coral reefs could recover so we went we went there and we filmed and it was absolutely extraordinary hmm. the abundance and an explosion of life we dove in the actual castle bravo crater there was still nothing there but right on the outside of that crater, the reefs were abundant and beautiful, breathtaking. Mm. The sharks were schooling in the hundreds. And it was a, a testament to the hope that I believe exists, that, that, that the resilience yeah. that nature has. The resilience. Has that, that is so powerful. We go to a place like the Mediterranean, it's devastated. It's devastating to see it. We go to a place like the Marshall Islands that saw the worst fire and brimstone humanity can engineer thrown at it for decades, and now it's a it's a flourishing oasis. So mm. there is mm. hope, and and we I think the good news is we know we know that's possible. We we have the tools in our arsenal to to solve the problems, and that's what I tell. We focus on youth education um, uh, more probably more than anything else, and that's the message that we always try and share with people. Mm.
3: Um, Philippe, one one thing that is on the other side of the spectrum of actionable for most individuals, if not all, um, is the damage caused uh, by oil and gas either polluting the air or polluting the water. You were uh, probably the first person to ever dive into an oil spill Uh, way back in 2010. uh, You dove I think one or two times, please correct Mm -hmm. me, um, into the Deep Horizon oil spill, so that all the rest of us who wouldn't uh, be as bold uh, could really understand what was happening. And um, today we're dealing with this oil spill in Mauritius, which, as we understand it, is not, um, the, the the size of it is not quite as uh, concerning as Deep Horizon, but the location is, because it is very, very close to very delicate protected marine ecosystems. Can, can you, first of all, you know, Walk us through that when you decided to dive into an oil spill, not exactly what I wake up every morning thinking of. Um, and and uh, what does that mean? How is it possible that still in 2020, we have, you know, not only the oil and gas industry, which admittedly is moving forward, um, but that we still have such unsafe transportation. Of oil, that we still have these accidents. How is that possible? But more than that, when are we going to give up on oil?
5: <laughs> so well, nine questions there. For yeah, yeah I'll try to keep them straight. Um, uh, all good ones, you know. Uh, the the B P oil spill was was a uh, um, was a incredible experience, uh, heart wrenching experience. You know, I remember watching the news. Uh, about um, a couple months after the initial reports about the, the Deepwater Horizon um, blowout preventer leaking and, and failing, and remember watching on the news in, across all the news agencies that the EPA had authorized the application of what's a dispersant, right? It's a surfactant and a solvent uh, to the surface of the water um, to make the oil go away, and I'm watching this I'm flipping through news channels. I'm like, make the oil go away. To make the oil what? go away, go where? Oh, it doesn't just yeah, go, go, where away. exactly. <laughs> and so I called Sam Champion at Good Morning America and ABC um, and uh, said, you know, Sam, I don't think anyone's ever on camera been diving into an oil spill. This is nonsense. This talk about oil going away. They were pulling straight from the kind of the press releases from BP. And um, we need to go and demonstrate to people that's not the case. So. Fast forward a couple weeks, we managed to get all the hazmat equipment that we needed and hard helmets, et cetera. And we dove into the spill and we demonstrated that it's far from making the oil just magically go away somehow. It's simply broke the surface tension and allowed the oil to then just get out of sight and sink into the water column. So we went down 30 or 40 feet and showed the whole water column as far as we could see was just this red muck. Like descending into hell, I believe is what I said at the time. And you saw dead fish with globules of oil sticking to them, and seaweed and jelly. I mean, it was awful. And that was transformational in the conversation around the surfactant or the the dispersant and the, the true nature of these oil spills. Prior to that, people could only see the oil slick at the surface. Uh, and and then subsequently, what I did, and, and this is this is important. And this is one of the reasons that I still think that the environmental movement has 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 failed to make as much progress as we would like to make on these issues, is people were covering the dolphins and the turtles and, and the, the natural devastation that was happening from this oil spill. And I was watching this coverage unfold and after my experience, my initial experience there. And I said, you know what I'm not seeing? I'm not seeing people going down and talking to the people whose lives are being impacted. Mm. I always tell folks that, you know, uh, one I think yeah. one of the biggest problems with climate change and what environmental groups have focused on is that when when people think about climate change, they think about polar bears. And most people don't, Let's face it. Really, really, really care about polar bears. They care in theory. They they they're, they're this nice fuzzy creature, but really care enough to change their life and their world. No. Why aren't? Why isn't a baby the face of climate change? Why aren't human human beings more the face human. of this? And Put so it what a we human did, face mm-hmm. on? Yeah. Ex- it, that's the challenge. And so when we went down to the Gulf Oil spill, I started inter- interviewing fishermen. I started interviewing oysterman. I started interviewing um, uh, the people with with tourism operations that were going out of business started talking about how um, when we degrade the environment and people lose their jobs, rates of domestic violence and suicide start going up. What is the human toll of this environmental disaster? And I think we we still fail to do that effectively in the environmental movement. We still kind of fall on the old images of sea turtles which I love a sea turtle let me tell you I love polar bears but how do we grow the audience of people that care about these issues to create the political change that we need we've got to start thinking about how we relate to people and I think it's the same issue in Mauritius I'm hearing a lot about the coral reefs which are beautiful and you know one to your to your earlier question Christiana one drop of oil in an area the size of an Olympic swimming pool is deadly toxic to coral larvae and fish larvae, just one drop of oil. So even 4,000 wow. gallons of bunker f- diesel bunker, f- heavy diesel bunker fuel that's leaking out of that ship in Mauritius is devastating to countless miles of these coral reefs, of which as you know, you know half of them have disappeared around the world and many of them are, are under stress.
3: So, Philippe, with that awareness that you have, the deep awareness of the devastation that we have caused and that we can potentially uh, further deepen, um, we we would love to hear your answer to the final question that we always ask our guests. Um, And that is on a spectrum of being outraged at the devastation that we have caused and the irresponsibility with which we continue to act on one side of the spectrum and on the other side of the spectrum of optimism about what we can do if we rise to our individual and collective responsibility. Where do you situate yourself in that spectrum?
5: Uh, (laughs) Christiana? that's a great question. I situate myself at many points along that spectrum, depending on the time of day and (laughs) what day of the week it is. uh, Honestly, my soul weeps. And oftentimes I shed tears when I hold my little girl and think of the kind of world that she's going to inherit. Um, It makes me very emotional. So at those times, uh, outrage and sadness perhaps prevail. But then um, I am filled with optimism. I run a nonprofit called Earth Echo International and we yes. are focused on youth education. And we just ran our youth uh, annual youth leadership summit. We had 500 youth, environmental youth leaders from around the world participate in f- three days of workshops, all digitally remotely from 44 countries and territories. Whenever I walk into a classroom pre-COVID or see a, 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 a interview or a Zoom call with a couple hundred youth leaders, um, I am filled with hope and optimism. As I'm sure you, you all three of you have seen in your in historic work in the Paris Climate Accords and all the work over the years that you've done, young people are full of determination. they are full of optimism, they are, itching to fight and they are fighting as we're seeing with Greta and her peers is kind of becoming I mean, a symbol of that youth power. But there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of Greta's around the world. Mm-hmm. There's a whole generation yes. that is so fired up, that is so passionate about these issues that when I see it, I am filled with hope and it rejuvenates mm-hmm. and renews my spirit and my soul. So so sometimes I think about what we've lost and it fills me with sadness, but then I, I, I spent just a moment with these young people, um, and I'm, I'm filled with optimism. And I do have incredible hope for the future. I do believe that we can overcome anything um, and that we have a new generation that is united together for a better world, and they will achieve that world, and it's it's our job mm. to help them as much as we can, and then get out of the way. Mm. So exactly, <laughs> I, I vote I vote optimism with with moments of outrage. Um, okay. that's it's a good balance.
3: We like we like we like that combination. We like that combination. Um, and that passion. Thank you so much. Yes, and the passion. Yes, thank you so so much. Really appreciate it. Um, very much appreciate that you brought your daughter into the conversation, because honestly, for all of us, that's what this is all about, right? This is this right. is our battle for them. So thank Indeed. you very much for that. Christiana, um, Tom, Paul,
5: uh, my honor to participate in this and, and spend a little bit of time with you all. I really appreciate it.
1: I shall never look at the sea the same way again. Thank you so the much. The big
5: blue flat thing. <laughs>
1: thank you, Paul. The big blue <laughs> <Thank> flat <you. laughs> thing. Philippe, you
3: have done what none of us have been able to do in years. Thank heavens. <laughs> well, that's, that's
1: completely wrong. I grew up watching your grandfather and I have a deep uh, love. And, but, but thank you. Honestly, your passion, your way of expressing is completely infectious and I now have been made optimistic by your energy. Thank you so much.
5: Paul, thank you. Thank you all.
2: So, what a pleasure to get a chance to speak to Philippe Cousteau. Um, what did you guys leave that conversation with?
1: Well, I was just, I was struck by his energy and his enthusiasm. And he's, you know, I i, I actually found myself getting... Uh, getting transformed myself and becoming fascinated and delighted by the ocean in a way that I hadn't felt before. And uh, do you know, I actually found a little, a quote of his, which I thought was very beautiful, uh, where he speaks to the, the extraordinary power of his name. And he says, I'll never be able to fill my father's or my grandfather's shoes, but hopefully I can stand on their shoulders and reach farther. And that, I think, sums up exactly his enormous gift. And I felt him reach a very, very long way into my heart and soul.
6: Wow. Mm.
3: Nice, nice, Paul. You know, I've been um I've been thinking lately about what we inherit from our parents. And um I'm sure one of you is going to remind me that I did not know that Stella McCartney was Paul McCartney. <laughs> did you know that Philippe Cousteau However, was
2: Jacques Cousteau's grandson?
3: Well, I did. You say, Yesterday, that's exactly... I forgot that Stella
1: McCartney was Paul McCartney's son. So, <laughs> yeah,
3: I did know where Philippe Cousteau comes from. Um, but I was actually quite taken um, by the fact that his father passed on before he was born and I was, I was trying to muse on what was the effect of that on him? Would he have had a different profession, a different relationship, deeper, not so deep with the oceans, if he had been able to um, dive alongside his father? Um, did he become so much more committed because his father was no longer there? I mean, we will never know. The answer to those counterfactual questions. But I just think it's so beautiful that this is the third generation that is so totally committed, that Philippe's wife actually is also committed. it's It's a whole clan thing. Mm. Um, and and honestly, the world would just be a sadder place without the Cousteau clan. It's so moving that they have decided uh, one generation after the other after the other to devote their life, A, to explore the oceans, which takes a heck of a lot of courage, um, and then not only to explore, but to be educators, to raise the awareness, to make us all, you know, for for um, using the words that you've used, make us all fall in love with the oceans. It's just a, a beautiful job that they're doing for all of us. Mm.
2: Yeah, and it's 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 so inspiring to see how that family legacy can be so nourishing and how, I mean, he's a deeply inspirational person in his own right, right? I mean, we had him on, yes. not because he's Jacques Cousteau's grandson, but because he's who he is and because of what mm-hmm. he's able to do. And and the comment you made, Paul, about him saying that you can stand on the shoulders of those who came before and reach faster reminded me, I'm sure you remember when, when we had one Matai on and we asked her about her mother. And she said, I don't stand in her shoes, I bask in her sunlight. And I just yeah, thought, you so know, th- it's all to do with perspective and how we respond to these things. And I just, I thought his comments were amazing. I mean, the fact that, that the ocean connects him to his father is just sort of hauntingly beautiful and very impactful, I thought. Um, but also some of the data that he provided, like I was kind of blown away by the fact that an acre of mangroves can absorb more carbon dioxide than an acre of rainforest. I, I had no mm. idea that that was the case. I don't know if it's as biodiverse, but I thought that was amazing. And yeah. I was also really struck by his comments about this film that he sees his grandfather diving on a reef in the Mediterranean in the French waters and what it was. And that if you go there now, it's kind of a desert. And I mean, you know, this is, this is hard, this stuff, but it, it made me think about places that I've been and what they'll be like or could be like when my children or grandchildren go there which is heartbreaking yeah. right i mean of course that's that's not our this is the whole point of what we're talking about that's not a predetermined destiny that it will be like that they might go back to where jacques cousteau was 5 generations ago and find the reef has been regenerated if we do our jobs right but hopefully hopefully but there's there's a lot at stake
3: you know, on, on the data piece, um, b- before we all get carried away with our emotions, um, on, on the data piece, one one piece about the oceans that is not often talked about and that actually he didn't refer to is the huge potential that we have for maritime or marine energy. Um, yeah. Yes, we talk a lot about offshore wind and definitely the UK has taken a fantastic leadership position there as well as many other countries um, harvesting, if I may say, um, offshore wind. But the oceans themselves have so, so much um, kinetic energy that can be harvested as well. And this morning on my beach walk, I was noticing Um, the the beautiful combination of tides that come in and out and waves that come in and out and how they actually work so beautifully with each other. But then I realized, oh my God, so there is energy here that can be harvested from the difference in the tides, i.e. tidal energy, as well as energy that can be harvested um, from the difference in the waves, i.e. wave energy. And it's just amazing to know that we have all of these oceans around the world that are still there um, lapping on our shores and waiting for us to develop the technology that has to be commercial in order to be um, used but just enormous amounts of energy there. And I I did a quick search and um, Wikipedia, which is Paul Dickinson's absolute (laughs) authority on everything. Um, And Wikipedia says there's a potential to develop somewhere between 20,000 and 80,000 terawatt hours per year of electricity generated by, you know, something related to um, ocean and water. It's just beyond belief how much there is there. Because we know we have to move away from fossil fuels, we know we have to go to the renewables. So there we are, a huge treasure trove of energy waiting on the sides for us to develop the technology that is going to be able to harvest it and distribute it at a commercially uh, competitive price.
4: Yeah,
1: and I mean, even slightly more modest, but using the IRENA methodology, we found a calculation showing uh, that just at 1,400 gigawatts of wind energy, offshore wind energy by 2050, that would create 24 million full-time jobs. And if that seems fanciful, let me just tell you that in the little town I live in on the south of England, Brighton, um, we have a 1.3 billion pound wind farm just offshore powers the entire town thank you very much indeed Uh, is very beautiful uh, winks at us at night and is a perfect compliment so yeah I mean we're blessed a little bit with the shallow coasts but I think that uh, uh, you know other nations can develop these technologies and they're so obviously the future you know at the same time as you know great companies like Rio Tinto are selling their coal divisions and the oil companies are are, are stopping capital expenditure Um, we can harvest uh, the the ocean resources, whether they're wind or, or, or tidal, uh, to make significant power and uh, and hopefully not disturb marine ecosystems in the process. That's a very positive outcome.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting you've had that thought, Christiana, walking on the beach. I'm currently still in Devon, uh, where I'm staying at my mum's house, because my mum has taken my daughter to stay in a beach hut for a week. And I go I drive down and see them once a day. And I said to my daughter, Zoe, I said, I'll, I'll walk down with you to the waterfront. Uh, when I come down. And depending on the time of day I go, it is literally, and I have a Fitbit so I can determine this, up to a mile different. The tide goes out (laughs) that far on Dunstone. Wow, a mile? A mile, whether you're up on the stones and the tide is fully in or this incredibly flat beach. So I'm now much more mindful of the tides in terms of when I go down there and whether I can actually afford to... To take the time but to I, I think down. I've mentioned this before
1: on their broadcast we have to be a little bit careful with tidal energy because we will slow the moon down <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you, oh, you, I've not read this in any scientific papers. This was developed entirely by me on, on uh, you know on a, on a little um, yeah. Yeah, one afternoon. It's, it's that, that next really, to
3: the flat blue thing. Yeah.
2: That, that is the statement of 2020, isn't it? Looking at social media. I've not read this in a scientific paper, but I still thought it was worth sharing on social media. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I have hundreds of Pop, these other Pop, theories. I think
3: <laughs> I hear a tweet coming from you.
2: Oh my god. The, the third tweet. The don't third tweet has to be slow down on tidal energy or we're going to stop the moon turning. It's going to go crazy. (laughs) Right, as ever, we're bringing you an amazing piece of music to end the episode. What have we got? So this week, we have a beautiful piece of music from Nick Mulvey. Now, usually, when we bring you these songs, we invite the artist to submit to us responses to a couple of inquiries about how they see the climate crisis and what the role of the artist is in in this moment of emergency. But instead of sending us something written, Nick actually recorded his response. So we'd like to play that to you. So I'm going to hand over now to Nick Mulvey, who's going to explain the song before he plays it. Really hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We look forward to seeing you with another conversation next week.
3: Bye. Bye.
6: I think, I think this song relates to the kind of climate crisis in, in, the, in, the, you know, in, in its grief and also in its wonder. You know? I, think, I think this moment is full of both. I once heard someone say that, that, that the question is n- not about the survival of humanity but more about the presence of eternity. And I found that to be very beautiful, very interesting. So the song has these passages sung from the higher self. I am in the living, I am in the dying too. Um, I am in the city, in the forest and the field. I am in the bounty, know me as I yield. I am in the falcon, in the otter and the stoat. I am in the turtle dove with nowhere left to go. And it goes on. I wanted these cascading images just to get the point across. This is, this is the I am. This is consciousness before preference. It's, it's in the city and the field. It's not just in nature. Where, where is not nature? So um, this song kind of uh, is bound up with, with, with grief for what's falling away and, and kind of space perhaps for what's coming through in this time. And uh, finally, just to say that I remember hearing Thich Nhat Khan, the Buddhist teacher, saying that when we look at the word environment, if we stop and really reflect on what that means, environment really means, in English, it means everything other than me. The environment of this room or the environment of the whole planet and its climate. And in doing so, our conception of the environment there perpetuates the seed of separation is perhaps at the heart of a lot of all this, is, uh, is everything other than me, and that we need to evolve at that very intimate point. Yeah, that's, that's this song. Mary was my
4: mother's mother, and my sister too. There's rain in the river, and there's a river running through. To the sea around these islands, crying tears of sorrow and pain. There's rain in the river, and there's a river in my veins Merry young as we may be, you know The blood in you and me is as old as blood can be Is as old as blood can be As old as blood can be Living lines of memory drew the markings on my hand Ancient lines of living love awaken in this land Saying I am in the city, in the forest and the field I am in the bounty, come on know me as I yield I am in the falcon, in the otter and the stoat I am in the turtle dove with nowhere left to go And in the moment of blind madness When he's pushing her away I am in the lover And in the ear who hears her say Can we begin again? Oh baby it's me again I know you are so different to me But I love you just the same I love you just the same. Mm-hmm. I love you just the same. Mm-hmm. I love you just the same. I love you just the same. Grandma Mary Ethel Ruddock, 1912-72 Though we never met in flesh, now I remember you You were warm and you were gentle, you were modest, you were kind A mother, wife and grand, you were a woman of your time But do we know your life in colour? Do we celebrate your flame? Remembering your offering With a candle in your name Mary, young as we may be You know, the blood in you and me Is as old as blood can be Is as old as blood can be As old as blood can be And she says, I am in the living I am in the dying too I am in the stillness Can you see me as I move? I am in the hawthorn In the apple and the beech I am in the mayhem And the medicine of speech And in the moment of blind madness When he's pushing her away I am in the lover And in the ear who hears her say Can we begin again? Oh baby, it's me again I know you are so different to me But I love you just the same Mm -hmm. I love you just the same I love you just the same Nahi I am in the living, I am in the dying too I am in the stillness, can you see me as I move And in the moment of blind madness, when he's pushing her away I am in the lover, and in the ear who hears her say Oh baby, it's me again, can we begin again I know you are so different to me, but I love you just the same
0: There you go another episode of outrage and optimism the track you just heard is begin again by nick mulvey i've put a link to his music in the show notes begin again is available now wherever you get your music and be sure to check out the begin again ep there's this awesome awesome remix by little dragon that you can spin so it's so good you have to check it out Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production and is executive produced by Marina Manzilieckerman and produced by Clay Carnell. But it's not just Marina and I, the rest of the team is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, and Sharon Johnson. And our hosts are Tom Rivet karnack Christiana Figueres, and Paul Dickinson special thanks this week to Kelsey Hervel and Molly Schoeneveld from the Storied Group for working with us and coordinating our interview with Philippe. They made it possible. And of course, a huge thank you to our guest this week, Philippe Gusto Jr. During the setup for our interview this week, I mentioned to Philippe that my son was teething and Philippe being a new father, just like me, and but a little bit further down the road, he recommended frozen peas. So I went and got some frozen peas. They are a hit with Emrys. I've never seen a child happily eat so many peas in my life. On a somewhat related note, I have also been finding peas all around the house. Not sure how they get there, but we couldn't be happier. So thank you, Philippe. Oh, actually, I got to we're going to run out in like two days. So I got to I'm going to add the peas to my grocery list for this week. The Cousteau clan is doing incredible things, and through their organization, Earth Echo International, they are equipping youth to identify and solve environmental challenges starting in their own communities. I put a link in the show notes to Earth Echo's website and Philippe's website and social media, where you can see all the films and TV shows he is on. One series in particular that I loved is The Aquatic World with Philippe Cousteau. It's a tongue-in-cheek tribute to the movie The Life Aquatic, great movie, but the series is playful, imaginative, educational, and hilarious, so click the link in the show notes to go on that adventure and many more with the Custos. Now, we know you're on the internet in search of great memes and up-to-the-minute climate news, and so are we. You can find us at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and LinkedIn, the slightly more business approach to wasting time on social media. If you love the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating. Thank you to everyone who is writing reviews. It makes all the difference. Those are my notes. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.